1: Okay, you guys, he's here now, and he's going to read from his new book.
0: Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. Robin Sloan, folks, he grew up in near Detroit, and now he splits his time between San Francisco and the Internet. He graduated from Michigan State with a degree in economics. And from 2002 to 2012, he worked at Pointer,
1: Current TV, and Twitter. Now, Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore is his very first novel, and you can learn more about him at robinsloan.com. So everyone, please uh, put your hands together for Robin Sloan.
0: Thank you so much. Oh, this is so fun. I feel like I've heard the word neighborhood so many times tonight, um, which bodes well for this bookstore and for this neighborhood um, that I guess many of you live in. So thank you everyone for coming out tonight and joining me. There's lots of friendly faces in the crowd, which is nice. I'm going to do just a few things. I'm going to tell you what this book is and where it came from. I'm going to read just a little bit from it. Um, I'm not one of those writers that believes in like reading all of chapters 3 through 7. Um, so I'm going to read just a snippet to kind of set up the mystery. And then I actually want to tell you a little story. Um, a story about something I saw a couple of weeks ago um, that has actually stuck with me. It's sort of been haunting me and I want to share it with you because it's very relevant to the place we're in. Um, and then we'll um, do questions, if anyone has any. Um, and then we'll sign books and hang out. Maybe buy some other books too. Um, yeah. <laughs> so um, so really quickly, Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore is a book that began as a tweet. Um, it wasn't my tweet. It was a tweet I read um, walking down the street in San Francisco. Um, I can still remember the intersection exactly. It was California Street up in kind of the foggy western part of the, of the city. And the tweet said, um, it's from a friend of mine, and she had just tweeted, I misread a sign that said 24-hour book drop, as in a library or something like that, as 24-hour book shop. My disappointment is beyond words. So this made me smile and made me kind of think like why aren't there more 24-hour bookstores um and it actually made me write it down this is the important thing i copied the tweet and i pasted it into my notes and so then um a few months later when i was sitting down to begin a short story i was going back through those notes and I found that tweet again. And it kind of seemed obvious to me that something, some story would begin obviously in a 24 hour bookstore, obviously during the night shift. Um, So I started writing and that became a short story which I published online um, on my website and in the Kindle store. And it's that short story that, you know, given three years of um, rumination and support um, from people in this room, including my editor, Sean, at Forest Arts and Giroux, who's here, Um, claps Sean, became this novel, this full-length novel. Um, But it still begins with the same premise. It begins with this idea of, you know, a 24-hour bookstore and how obviously that's a place where something begins. Um, So I'm going to kind of set that up for you. Um, I want you to just note a couple things before I begin. Um, One is you might have seen it coming in. There's a neon sign in the window, um, and this is actually... the the mark of penumbra. Um, Take a look on the way out if you didn't notice it. Um, It's in the shape of two hands open like a book. So just note that because it it will be important in a moment. Um, And then also, just to sort of situate this little section I'm about to read, uh, imagine that Skylight Books, your neighborhood bookstore, has instituted a 24-hour availability policy. Um, And imagine that you have gotten the job as the night clerk. And uh, imagine that you're working the late shift. Um, and it's pretty quiet, as you would probably expect. Um, imagine that you're sort of sitting at that front desk up there. Imagine that cat is still here, um, wandering around, but that's the only other like living organism in the store. Um, and so imagine that you're kind of looking around the store and you're noticing that the layout is a little stranger than you've realized at first. You might think something like this. <clears throat> So there's the more or less normal bookstore, which is up front, packed in tight around the front desk. There are short shelves marked history and biography and poetry. There's Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics and Trevanian's Shabumi. This more or less normal bookstore is spotty and frustrating, but at least it's stocked with titles that you could find in a library or on the internet. The other bookstore is stacked behind and above all that on the tall laddered shelves, and it is comprised of volumes that, as far as Google knows, don't exist. Trust me, I've searched. Many of these have the look of antiquity, cracked leather, gold leaf titles, but others are freshly bound with bright, crisp covers. So they're not all ancient, they're just all unique. I think of this as the Wayback list. When I started working here, I assumed they were all just from tiny presses, tiny Amish presses with no taste for digital record keeping. Or I thought maybe it was all self-published work, a whole collection of hand-bound one-offs that never made it to the Library of Congress or anywhere else. Maybe Penumbra's was a kind of orphanage. But now, a month into my clerkship, I'm starting to think it's more complicated than that. You see, to go with the second store, there's a second set of customers, a small community of people who orbit the store like strange moons. They are nothing like the rest. They are older. They arrive with algorithmic regularity. They never browse. They come wide awake, completely sober, and vibrating with need. For example. The bell above the door will tinkle, and before it's done, Mr. Tyndall will be shouting, breathless, Kingslake! I need Kingslake! He'll take his hands off his head. Has he really been running down the street with his hands on his head? And clamp them down on the front desk. He will repeat it, as if he's already told me once that my shirt is on fire, and why am I not taking swift action? Kingslake, quickly! The database on the Mac Plus encompasses the regular books and the Wayback List alike. The latter aren't shelved according to title or subject, I don't think they even have subjects, so the computer assist is crucial. Now I will type K-I-N-G-S-L-A-K-E, and the Mac will churn slowly, Tyndall bouncing on his heels, and then chime and show its cryptic response. Not biography or history or science fiction and fantasy, but 313, that's the way back list. Aisle three, shelf 13, which is only about 10 feet up. Oh, thank goodness, thank you, yes, thank goodness, Tyndall will say, ecstatic. Here is my book. He will produce a very large book from somewhere, possibly his pants. It will be the one he's returning, exchanging for this King's Lake. And here is my card. He will slide a prim laminated card across the table, marked with the same symbol that graces the front windows. It will bear a cryptic code, stamped hard into the heavy paper, which I will record. After I do my monkey business on the ladder, I will wrap Kings Lake in brown paper. I will try to make small talk. How's your night going, Mr. Tyndall? Oh, very good now, better. He will breathe, taking the package with shaking hands. Making progress, slow, steady, sure. Festina Lente, thank you, thank you. Then the bell will tinkle again as he hurries back out into the street. It will be three in the morning. Okay, so if that happened here, working the night shift at Skylight Books, um, you'd probably be um, pretty curious, Um, pretty intrigued. And you might ask your boss, um, by the way, Skylight Books will have changed ownership by then. It will have a new neighborhood owner, um, an old man with bright blue eyes called Mr. Penumbra. Um, and he'll come to meet you during the day. You'll essentially relinquish the desk when the sun rises to this old man whose name is on the front of the store. And um, so your interaction might go something like this. Is this a book club? How do they join? Do they ever pay? These are the things I ask myself when I sit here alone after Tyndall or Lappin or Fedorov has left. Tyndall is probably the weirdest, but they're all pretty weird all graying, single-minded, seemingly imported from some other time or place. There are no iPhones. There's no mention of current events or pop culture or anything really other than the books. I definitely think of them as a club, though I have no evidence that they know one another. Each comes in alone and never says a word about anything other than the object of his or her current frantic fascination. I don't know what's inside those books and It's part of my job not to know. After the latter test, back on the day I was hired, Penumbra stood behind the front desk, gazed at me with bright blue eyes, and said, this job has three requirements, each very strict. Do not agree to them lightly. Clerks in this store have followed these rules for nearly a century, and I will not have them broken now. One, you must always be here from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. exactly. You must not be late you cannot leave early. Two, you may not browse, read, or otherwise inspect the shelved volumes. Retrieve them for members, that is all. I know what you're thinking. Dozens of nights alone and you've never cracked a cover? No, I haven't. For all I know, Penumbra has a camera somewhere. If I sneak a peek and he finds out I'm fired, My friends are dropping like flies out there. Whole industries, whole parts of the country are shutting down. I don't want to live in a tent. I need this job. And besides, the third rule makes up for the second. You must keep precise records of all transactions. The time, the customer's appearance, his state of mind, how he asks for the book, how he receives it, does he appear to be injured, Is he wearing a sprig of rosemary on his hat? And so on. I guess under normal circumstances, this would feel like a creepy job requirement. Under the actual circumstances, lending strange books to stranger scholars in the middle of the night, it feels perfectly appropriate. So rather than spend my time staring at the forbidden shelves, I spend it writing about the customers. On my first night, Penumbra showed me a low shelf inside the front desk where, lined up, there was a set of oversized leather-bound tomes, all identical except for bright Roman numerals on their spines. Our log books, he said, running his finger down the line, going back nearly a century. He hauled up the rightmost tome and, and laid it on the desk with a heavy whoomp. You will help to keep them now. The logbook's cover bore the word narratio, deeply embossed, and a symbol, the symbol from the front windows. Two hands open like a book. Open it, Penumbra said. Inside the pages were wide and gray, filled with dark handwriting. There were sketches too, thumbnail portraits of bearded men, tight geometric doodles. Penumbra gave the pages a heave and found the place about halfway through, marked with an ivory bookmark, where the writing ran out. You will note names, times, and titles, he said, tapping the page, but also, as I said, manner and appearance. We keep a record for every member and for every customer who might yet become a member in order to track their work. He paused, then added, some of them are working very hard indeed. What are they doing? My boy, he said, eyebrows raised, as if nothing could be more obvious, they are reading. <laughs> so the mystery goes deeper. Um, so I want to take your questions about um, the book or how it came to be or anything like that. Um, but first, I want to tell you a story, because um, I think it's well worth sharing, and because it's um, been sort of stuck in my brain, and I have this theory that maybe by sharing it, I'll, um, I'll get it out. Um, as part of the sort of celebration around the launch of this book, um, which has only been out for a couple of weeks now, in New York, I got the opportunity to go to a place called the Grolier Club. Um, this is uh, sort of a society of bibliophiles, um, and it's exactly what you want that to be. It's dark and wood and there's shadows and you know rich spines. It's, it's, a, it's a lot like the, the mysterious books here in Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore. Um, I got to go there, and the sort of chief librarian there had assembled a collection of um, what are called Aldeans. These are the books printed by Aldus Minucius, who was probably the first great printer in history. This is right around the beginning. This is the dawn of the 16th century. Um, Printing movable type is like a hot new invention. Um, And Aldus Minucius was the first person to print the classics, Um, the great Greeks, the... the, um, you know, the poets Virgil and Ovid. Um, so I saw these books before me and I um, had read a lot about Aldous Minutius because he actually plays a role in the plot of Penumbra. I don't wanna say much more than that, um, but suffice it to say I had like, read all the Wikipedia pages and even like some books about him and uh, and I would looked at images of his books online, um, but I'd never actually seen one of those books in person until now. And um, what I saw actually surprised me. For one thing, the books were quite small. Um, they were probably as small as some of the sort of most pocket-sized paperbacks in the store today. Um, and that was actually a new thing. Um, that was one of his innovations. And these books, these remarkably tidy little, um, little printed books, represented therefore the first time in history that a person could have curled up with the Odyssey, curled up with Virgil. The first time that their relationship relationship to the book was not, you know, kind of like grappling with this giant object that was chained to a desk and you had to like flip the pages like you were wrestling with them. So, that was one thing. Um, They were beautiful. They were incredibly well-preserved, in part because they were made with such incredibly high-quality materials. Um, and they were starkly beautiful. You know, This was not the beauty of a medieval manuscript that's all the sort of flowery illuminations. Um, this was the beauty of, of I don't know, um, beautiful black serifs stamped hard into just clean white paper. Um, and even today, these books are regarded as probably some of the most beautiful books, the most beautifully designed books ever made. And then the third thing was, um, one of them in particular, um, we are kind of looking at it and uh, the, the whole two-page spread was all in italics. And um, the librarian explained, I had actually read this myself, um, and so I nodded sagely when she explained this, um, that Minucius actually invented italics. That flowing sort of more natural script was actually created to emulate the look of, say, a scribe's handwriting. Um, but they invented it. and. The italics that we know today, the italics on everyone's computer, the italics that are a part of typographic culture, they began with these books. And so these pages I was looking at represented literally some of the first instances of this crazy invention called italics, um, again, in history. So you stack all these things up, um, the fact that they were so personal, the fact that they were so beautiful, um, and the fact that they were actually full of innovation. And it actually really struck me looking at these 500-year-old books. Sitting there on the table, I realized I was looking at the iPhone. I mean, this was literally without too much sort of fancy flourishing metaphor at all. This was the iPhone of the 16th century. Um, it was exactly as high tech and exactly as, I think, probably lust inducing as like the iPhone 5 is today. Um, to people of that time. I think you'd walk into one of the places where you could buy one of these books and you would kind of stare at them and you would say, what is that? And maybe, I want one. Um, And I like this. And the the thing that struck me is that it wasn't much of a leap. I mean, they still look like technology. Um, They don't look like handicrafts. They don't look look fusty. They don't look traditional. They look high tech. Um, And that's one of the things that actually becomes part of the story in Penumbra and one of the things that I think you end up thinking about if you read Mr. Penumbra's 24-hour bookstore, um, books and technology are not opponents, um, but beyond that, they're actually not even strangers. Um, The history of books is actually a history of technology and looking, for me at least, looking at these books, some of the very oldest I realized that what I was looking at were, were incredibly high-tech objects. So, um, after we do some questions and some signatures and everything else, this is my challenge to you, um, my sort of um, exhortation. Uh, as you're wandering back out through the shelves here at Skylight Books, um, make sure you take a couple books and look at them. Kind of look through the cover and try to ignore you know, whatever it is about, whatever the story is, or the fact that it's like, the third in A Song of Ice and Fire or whatever, um, and see it for a second as technology. Um, because I think as soon as you do that, it actually short-circuits a lot of the you know, arguments and debates that we're having today about the future of books and the future of technology. Um, when you realize that books themselves are technology and always have been, um, it lets you think about the whole conversation in a different way. And you realize that um, Technology is not some strange new visitor that just walked in the front door of the bookstore. It's actually been here from the very beginning. So I just thought I would share that because that's kind of my revelation of the moment. Okay, so do you have any questions about the book or technology or anything else? I think one of my friends should just make one up, just to... (laughs)
1: Right on cue. Uh, well, I mean, so what you're saying here I think makes a lot of sense, but I think there's something fundamental about the aspect of paper and that this is a bit more of a controlled medium than what we're experiencing right now. And that's what a lot of people talk about. I know you've messed around with this idea of changing the way that we experience written word. Can you talk about how that doesn't necessarily obliterate, like, oh, well, turning a page is what a book is about?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're kind of talking about is understanding that we, we're very used to talking about um, new iPhones and new websites and everything in terms of features, like, oh, it's got Siri, or it can, you know, it's got 4G internet. And it's, it can seem a little cute, but I actually think it's very helpful to think about everything, even old familiar stuff in terms of features. Um, People joke about the fact that it has infinite battery life, um, and will always be compatible, and it's like easy to share it with people. But it's true, it's those things are actually difficult in a digital realm to reproduce. One of them, I will tell you, the one that has been um, most meaningful to me lately, in all seriousness, um, I think that physical books have the ability to remind you that they exist. And we should actually think of that as a feature. Um, Digital books are awesome. I have bought many a digital book in my life. Um, But once you're done with them, uh, and once they get relegated to that, like, Kindle directory screen, um, they disappear. It's easy to forget about them. Um, But books stick around, they hang out on the shelf or in the pile, like, under your underwear. Um, And I think that's actually a great virtue. I think that's a pretty amazing, pretty killer feature. What else? Yeah.
1: I think you just made me think of something that there's really something slightly pleasing about reading a book until it falls apart. And
0: I've done it with several books. <laughs> I, bought it, I bought one that I had as a boy. I gave it to one of my children. I said, You know, I read this book when I had it until it fell apart. Literally. Yeah. It, it, it was one of those that it's a hardback and it was all bound
1: together with strength.
0: Well, there's something that's funny, something very interesting actually happening right now with digital books. So, you're articulating something that's, I think, again, one of the great features of physical books. Um, they, they can show us their history, and that can be everything from marginalia to a signature, to an inscription, to total disintegration. And those things all have content, right? There's, there's something interesting about all of those. Digital books to date, have not had any of those things, people are now trying to essentially recreate them. There's a lot of folks out there trying to figure out, you know, could a digital book have marginalia? How should that work? How can we make that as easy and as pleasing as scribbling in the margins of a print book? Um, with, are there ways to share that? Are there ways to pass that along? You know, if you, if you give me a copy of an old book that's disintegrating and full of your handwriting, that's actually a pretty amazing gift. Today, if you give me a copy of a digital book, One, it's probably illegal, and two, um, none of that stuff travels with it, Um, and maybe it ought to. Maybe there's actually something um, very sort of important to be kind of learned or copied from the physical regime. What else? So, books are technology that has evolved over the years. Do you have any predictions for how books will look in the future? That's a great question. The question, um, if you didn't hear it, was um, if books are a technology that's evolved, do I have any... Predictions for how they will evolve in the future. Well, some of them will glow in the dark. I don't know if you guys know this, but um, the cover, the cover for Mr. Pernibus' 24-hour bookstore glows in the dark. Um, I, feel, I actually feel bad saying it in public sometimes because I think it's actually really lovely for people to. Should I? Should I? I shouldn't. I shouldn't share it. Okay. All right. All right. Never again. <clears throat> Never again um but it's true and it's true and in all seriousness that's that's technology right like you couldn't you couldn't make a glow-in-the-dark cover 100 years ago i don't actually know when glow-in-the-dark ink became available um at some point it did um i think i'll tell you what um i don't don't um i wouldn't bet money on this one um but i'm currently very interested in it um i'm gonna go back to those aldeans the books from Aldous minutius you actually didn't buy those um bound you bought a sheaf of pages and it was up to you as the book buyer to like get somebody to bind them in the material the color the pattern of your choosing um they were also not illustrated um they had these big sort of spaces like imagine imagine that like this is the beginning of a chapter there'd be a big empty space right there for that for that beautiful majuscule the leading capital letter um that we recognize from old fairy tales and things like that and that was up to you you would like hire an illustrator to render the majuscules in your house colors, you know, I like dragons, make them all dragons. Um, And so we don't obviously do that anymore. Um, But I think it might be interesting if we did. You know, what if there was some way of buying a book, a real print book, a physical book, um, and specifying in the same way that you buy an iPhone case, I guess? specifying, you know, what kind of binding you wanted, maybe from a palette of options. And then maybe there'd be a way to either, you know, again, like that idea of sort of making it your own. I think those ideas are actually connected somehow. The idea that, that physical books are things that you can write in and differentiate. And then when you pass along to someone else, um, it's actually a pretty unique object. I think there's some ways technology might might help us do that kind of stuff. Actually make books more custom and more personalized. Yeah. Actually
1: kind of question about I mean especially as we think about the fact that that so much about books that we enjoy happens to be incidental or coincidental, right? That, that we enjoy the marginalia, even though we would prefer clean copy, right? We enjoy finding the book under our, our pile of underwear, even though we would much rather not have to pay to transport our books every time we move from apartment to apartment, right? Mm-hmm. We would rather all of these things be virtual, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, is, is there a way in which technology, because it directs itself to constantly solving our problems and giving us what, what, what we want, at the time doesn't allow this sort of patina of, of, you know, the incidental, you know, things that we may, we may not have
0: wanted, but we realize later that we do. I think you just made a case for more randomness, more pure noise. I'm serious, in, you know, these great algorithms, we, um, we have come to live by these algorithms that are always being optimized to show us cool stuff and you know point us in the right direction, and they're actually really effective. I mean, they're they're great, they work. Um, but maybe there ought to either be a button you can press or something that just triggers every so often of its own accord that just throws something totally random in there. I'm thinking of the brief, uh, bright existence of chat roulette. I don't know if you guys remember chat roulette. Um, it was, I mean, chat roulette was deeply strange, um, but, but it was, it was the service where you would essentially be connected via video to someone random. And part of its charm was that it was truly random. Um, and of course, there are good things and bad things about that. But uh, I buy it. I'm, I'm on board. I think there should be a big red button that just says, I don't know, you know, roll the dice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Anything else? One more? So when you were talking about, you know, getting your own illustrator for the book, it
1: gave me thing. Um, that's one of the things that I was a little bit sad about when I bought the novel is that um, in the original short story it had these what I thought were pretty great illustrations, especially the Mr. Tyndall one, it's kind of memorable. <laughs>
0: um, and some of your other work you bought, you also did, you know, some pretty involved uh, work to try to illustrate different features you had you know, your own algorithms to generate you know, some of the imagery for some of the, your other work. So I, I don't know if you're thinking about using that for this book or having some other... I will tell you, the, it's the the question of illustrations. And I actually decided, it was it was actually a conversation that, that I had with, uh, with Sean about... Um, illustrations and sort of pictures in line and i will tell you at first i was pretty excited about them but then i as i kind of thought about it more and more and frankly as i spent more time with the story i realized that this is a book that's very much about books as text you know it's like all the books in mr penumbra's 24-hour bookstore all the mysterious books on the way back list they are all text and they're all symbols um, and there's something actually pretty powerful and flexible about that because i mean I know you know this. Um, There's nothing more portable and, in a way, resilient than plain text. There's ways to screw up graphic formats and it's sometimes hard to get images to reproduce the same way on different devices and, you know, are we going to be able to read an animated GIF file in 10 years? I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) But I don't know. Um, But I know we'll be able to read plain text. And so that's actually in many ways, the spirit of the book. And so we finally decided that actually this book um, ought to kind of be the sort of book that it's talking about, just letters in order. Um, But there will be more illustrations in the future for other things for sure. I like pictures too, yeah, yeah. Anything else, last chance? Cool, thank you guys so much. This is uh, such a lovely crowd and a lovely bookstore, so thanks for coming out.